time, we're taking a look at the extraterrestrial thriller, Alien. And along the way, we ask just how sexual is the alien? Is Ash the true villain, or is it the company? And how did this become adapted for a high school play? In space, no one can hear you podcast. This is Horsebed Sci-Fi. Alright guys, welcome back to another awesome episode of Force Fed Sci-Fi. I'm one of your hosts, Sean Michael Culp, and along with me is my friend and co-host. I am Chris Rupp, and I gotta say, we are so excited to be back together. We are Sean and I are recording for the first time in person in over a year and a half, and joining us today as well is our friend and producer, Jeremy Kesky, is back in person recording with us. Hello, Jeremy. Hey, what's going on? Yes! Uh, it has been too long, my friend. It has been a long time. I'm glad to be back. God. This seemed like a very appropriate episode to get the gang back together, because we're talking about Ridley Scott's sci-fi horror masterpiece, Alien. Mm-hmm. And I, when this came up, when after talking about Battlefield Earth, this was the appropriate tonic. It really was. Um, I think we've been, well, I hadn't really seen it. I've never seen this film until now. I've always heard about it. I know you've talked about it before as being one of the best sci-fi films. So it just worked. And then we decided to do a suite on it too. And it just worked out. Jeremy wanted to come in and God, it's been since I think March. Of March 2020. of 2020. It's been a long time. So this is kind of fresh. Nice to be back in person. Nice to be back in person. A lot has changed for all of us here sitting at the table, both in our personal and professional lives. But I think a lot of change for the better. (laughs) But we're excited to be back. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Let's get into this. Chris, uh, synopsis man. Let's go. All right. So during their return trip to Earth, the crew of the Nostromo respond to a distress call and encounter of nests of eggs which one latches on to one of the crew members. When a highly advanced and deadly alien emerges, it begins to stalk the crew as they fight for survival. It's always so epic, the way you... <laughs> <laughs> I try to put on the, the trailer guy affectation when I do these synopsis. Yeah, like how they used to. They would voice over on during the trailers, but they don't do that anymore. In a world. That's right. They don't. No, I think, well, that guy passed away, I think, in the early 2000s. So they don't, no, they don't do voiceovers anymore. Oh, I guess, yeah. And never. He had cornered the market on trailer voiceovers. <laughs> he was the lone guy. All the studios were like, that guy died. We we can't, we don't know who else can do it. In a world. <laughs> well, in this movie, <laughs> it is, uh, who, who's the director? We got Ridley Scott, the man, the myth, and the legend, who now has kind of been uh, infamous for this for starting this off. Now he is the man, the myth, the legend. Before this, he was just some English actor who had only directed one movie before this. We now know him as this great contributor to sci-fi and cinema in general, but that was not the book on him in 1978 when he was hired to direct it. No, he was a nobody, essentially. Yeah, he directed one movie, The Duelist, that was well-received, great cast, and Fox called him up and was like, hey, you're cheap, you want to direct this? (laughs) And little did we know he would come to create one of the most uh, hailed sci-fi films of all time. Uh, But he didn't write this, right? It was uh, someone else. Dan O'Bannon is credited as the sole writer for this movie. And he had originally worked on a sci-fi comedy with John Carpenter called Dark Star. And 
wanted to do a similar type of film, but place it in a horror setting. So, and I don't think anything before this we had seen like true horror set in space. We definitely see like kind of a mix of sci-fi and horror. We we've seen that in um, the thing, and as well as the thing from another world, invasion of the body snatchers. But so we've definitely seen the two genres come together. But I don't think we've seen like a horror film set in space where there is no escape. You are trapped on board this ship with a hostile alien. It uh, sets the stage for something, as you would say, epic. <laughs> Very epic. And really, a lot of tropes came out of this film. It really was a first of its kind, I would say. Epic and truly terrifying. Mm-hmm. Like you, I think this film is now so ubiquitous among the culture. You know, the chestburster scene, um, the alien emerging, as well as the ending with Ripley in the in the spacesuit and the life craft that I think a lot of it the true horror elements of it really kind of have been lost to past generations we know the chest bursting scene that's the most that's the most prominent one that comes to mind we're going to get into that but now it's just so well known that you watch that scene and a lot of that punch has been kind of removed yeah it just doesn't hit the same as it used to but it's been parodied so much and you know especially with the sequels it's like all right is there something else Maybe seeing a chest burster out of the uh, behind of someone would be much more intriguing. <laughs> but who's in this film? Chris, let us in, uh, enrich my life with who's ever in this film. Big cast, uh, relative knowns at the time, but they're not the legends that we know them today. We've got Tom Skerritt as Dallas. I'm a big Tom Skerritt stan. He's in one of my favorite movies, A River Runs Through It. Uh, we have the legend, now legendary Sigourney Weaver, who was... Still pretty unknown around this time. She hadn't done Ghostbusters yet. Uh, Veronica Cartwright, whose one job is to just play scared the entire time. Because <laughs> uh, we, she was in the year before, she was in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I heard she didn't want to be in this, actually, because I, of that. She wanted to be Ripley. She had yeah. originally read for Ripley, but Ridley Scott convinced her to um, be Lambert. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also got Harry Dean Stanton as Brett. Uh, John Hurt as Kane, Ian Holm as Ash, and Yafet Kodo as one of my favorite Bond villains mm-hmm. uh, as Parker. And then also uh, showing up in the alien suit, it was, uh, I think, a six foot ten. I'm going to butcher his name. I apologize in advance. It's uh, Bolajai Bedejao. He was he was just found in a bar and like, hey, you're tall. You want to work <laughs> on a movie? <laughs> and just Put- stick him in a suit the whole time. <laughs> Take some money. Run around. That's uh, that's the way to do it, though, right? I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then moving quickly, we'll get into the pre-production notes here. So at the time, this was budgeted at $11 million. Which is fantastic for, like, now. For now. I mean, even I mean, now, that's about God. $38 million. Still, I mean. I mean, you make your movie right, that gets you a lot of movie. Oh, my gosh, yeah. But now you couldn't even imagine doing something like this for eleven million. No, like, oh, one hundred fifty at least. You it know? originally started at four point two million dollars. That was its original budget, and this was bankrolled by Fox. And I think they had just learned so much from the production disaster that was Star Wars at being over budget and being over schedule that they just said, "Okay, we we're willing to give you some money. We're not going to give you all the money." You, but you get some money. Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie was originally pitched as Jaws in space. 
which I can see actually. I, you can definitely feel that in this film. It's yeah. Actually, I was thinking about that the other day. <laughs> it's like this does very much feel like a Jaws esque. A lot you, of the sequences. And you've got to look at the previous years of films that came out before this, and starting with Jaws in 1975, you got John Carpenter's Halloween, Star Wars. You had those three films alone, like totally changed the landscape of cinema up to this point. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of. So I think even without Jaws, I don't think it would have been possible to make this movie. No, people have definitely stolen from that. And, you know, that's fine. We thank you, Spielberg, for making such a classic that allowed film to, you know, transform and inspire many other directors. That's why I think the 70s for filmmaking is such like a a revered at least in me personally time for cinema because there's just so much creativity that if you look at film history movies nowadays wouldn't have been anywhere close if we didn't have the 70s without a doubt so it's pretty it's pretty fantastic uh if I, anyone wants to check out good movies check out the 70s man <laughs> it is hokey with some stuff but hey it's it's really that's the bread and butter it yeah. is only two years after Star Wars came out and Fox had learned all these lessons and everybody was just making a whole new generation of films that were inspired by Star Wars. So Star Wars is going to be very front and center in a lot of ways in what we talk about. It was the pioneer of the, you know, the industry. It changed everything. <laughs> so rock on. And those spacesuits, I mean, as bulky as they seem to be, they actually had they had no cooling system in them. <laughs> really? So when you see... John Hurd and Tom Skerritt and uh, Veronica Cartwright sweating in them. It's because they're basically dying in those suits. <laughs> <laughs> they had to have nurses on staff because to prevent them from passing out because, oh, crap, these are going to get so hot. Well, what do we do about the actors? We'll worry about that later. So all the sweat that we thought was just them acting. No, they were actually dying. They're actually dying in those suits. <laughs> well, set the stage for more realism, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Realistic. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing about movie sets is they get incredibly hot. There's so much lighting and equipment, and those buildings are not well insulated. It gets very hot on film sets. And if you don't if you're wearing a big bulky suit, you need something to cool you down. Like it's the reason why now mascot suits have like a little fan in them, because like mascots kept dying in the sixties and sixties, seventies and eighties. When they passed out on the line, they weren't taking a break. No, it's like they were literally dead. It's like, oh look, a double just bounced off the Philly Fanatics head. And you think about that with this film, like how tight all the corridors were and then with the flamethrowers i mean these guys had to involve in just toasting the entire filming production i don't think there's any point in this movie where somebody isn't sweating <laughs> right it's like it makes sense why they were dumping water like in some of the scenes on the alien you know it was dripping down well even that scene with ripley and ash in the in the mother room she yeah. looks like she's just worked out for the last hour just oh, yeah. dripping in sweat who would have thought it wasn't a character choice? Oh, it wasn't a character <laughs> choice. It was just Ridley Scott putting the actress through sheer torture. It's <laughs> oh, cool. I never knew that. The more you know. <laughs> All right. So let's get into the actual movie. And I think it's appropriate to lead off any discussion of this movie. We have to talk about the creature design mm -hmm. in the different phases that this alien goes through. Because it starts off as the egg. And then the face hugger emerges and latches itself onto Kane, 
and then we have the chest burster and then apparently it's evolution it's growth cycle is very short because it's quick i don't know this movie doesn't do a great job of really kind of displaying the passage of time does it almost seem like 20 minutes later it's a full-grown killing machine yeah <laughs> yeah i did kind of feel that once they start looking around for the cat it's like oh wow that grew pretty quick yeah it changes color too like mm-hmm. i don't know if it, that's like an adaptive feature depending on the environment because this seems like a very evolutionary type of creature mm-hmm. like it does have the acid for blood but mm-hmm. i feel like it it changes and grows based on the environment it's initially born into. Yeah. And like the shape of it, as we found in later movies, um, it definitely takes on the characteristics of the host that the face hugger essentially breeds with, you know, cause I don't know if you ever saw alien vs predator, but when I it pops out at the end as like the little predator, like, doo, 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 doo. <laughs> so it's kind of, that's kind of unique. It, cause Initially, I thought when I saw the alien, I'm like, oh, it's just a guy in a costume, you know, walking around because they didn't, you know, maybe they didn't have the money for the animatronics or anything or stop motion. But he took that and ran with it. So the lore is big with this creature. Very much so. Yeah. And it's also not something that's really explored until the prequel movies start coming out. But Mm -hmm. that's neither here nor there today. (laughs) But Um, what did you think? Did you think like did because I saw the creature, I was like, oh, Godzilla. You know, guy in a costume. Did that take away anything from you? I mean, it's some. I mean, yeah, it's a little hokey at times, especially <laughs> like that scene where Dallas is in the ventilation, and then the light shows on the <laughs> aliens, and it like does this whole like give me a hug gesture towards me towards him. Yes. I mean, it's a little it's a little off putting. It's still very scary. Don't get me wrong. But like the gesture, I think, is all wrong. I laughed. I was like, surprise. Hi, Dallas. Give me a hug. I know. My little mouth just wants to, you know, rip your head open. (laughs) I think they do a good job, though, of making the alien look scary enough. Um, I think. And then the it's it seems like it's always dripping, too. It's like and that kind of gives you like a a creepy vibe as well yes the scene where um he kills the first guy i I butchered the name brett brett when he looks up and you get the nice close-up of the alien with like the water and the slime coming out of its mouth that is timeless to me that scene that's just like one of those like jurassic park jaws where you just it even now it looks incredible well terrifying and even how well it's able to hide in all the nooks and crannies of this ship like that scene in particular where it descends on brett mm-hmm. and gets him and then it's able to hide in the lifeboat and surprise ripley this this is a big ship it's able to hide in so many places it's mm-hmm. <laughs> it'd be like it'd be like jaws except you were in a lifeboat and the and it like the sharks in a swimming pool yeah <laughs> it's the ship is it's the perfect tale for terror because all the winding hallways, I mean, it's that's got to be absolutely terrifying to be in space with something that size that could kill you. I think it's just it, for me watching this movie, it was kind of hard to figure out how this ship is exactly laid out. Yes, that's what I've, I don't know if you guys felt like that, too, because I'm like, where? Because the size of the ship is massive and then the pods, everything. It was like, well, what? you see certain rooms. I mean, you definitely see the bridge, uh, the control room. You see where they all eat where they were in stasis but you and then you see some hallways but you don't it's really hard to figure out exactly how this ship is laid out and it's just very 
I think especially towards the end where Ripley is trying to stop the self-destruct sequence, mm-hmm. that's where the confusion really kind of sets in. And I think it actually works in this film's advantage because, A, you don't know where you are on the ship, and B, you don't know where the alien is either. No, and it checks all those boxes for terror. It's fa- it Plus the claustrophobia. I mean, whoever made this idea, you're the man. Because it, it works for filmmaking perspectives. And it's weird to think that like the design of the creature all came from H.R. Giger. Hmm. Like he had all these designs in his head about how the alien would emerge from the egg, the face hugger, the chest burster, and then the final form. Like, dude, like you've got a twisted mind going on here. It is a little bit sexual, right? Because I know that's kind of <laughs> that's well, I didn't think it was. Into why I guess maybe my monkey brain didn't really focus in on it too much. I just thought it was alien. But I when I read up on this, like it's super like the face hugger comes at you, you know, shoves the the egg down your like esophagus. I mean, the egg opening up. He was I guess I don't know if you read about that, but he was trying to make it look like a vagina. But then they didn't want to offend religious groups, so they made it with four flaps. So it looked like a cross. I don't know if you read that. I did not read that. I know a lot of uh, Catholic, I think Catholic or Jewish uh, mm-hmm. religious officials burned down a lot of promotional material yes. for this film. <laughs> um, but, but I think a lot of retrospect has been applied to this movie in terms mm-hmm. of the sexual overtones. Yeah, because it, it didn't seem like that to me until reading up about Giger. And he's like, oh, yeah, it was totally the face hugger jabbing at you, you know, everything. It's like, okay, okay. He said he wanted to make males feel uncomfortable. Well, everyone's uncomfortable watching this movie. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Uh, well, maybe that's why he particularly chose, you know, a dude to be impacted as opposed to a female. I don't well, know. And, well, and what is it specifically about the creature that makes it, like, so scary? Like, it's hard. I think it's just hard to pin down on one thing. Like, is it the sexual nature? Is it it's almost instinct like brutality mm-hmm. is it the is it the acid for blood like what is it about the alien that's made it such this timeless monster for lack of a better word yeah because we don't really know what it's you know fighting for is are it's just to survive right and almost i actually when i was watching this initially at the end when he's in the escape pod with ripley and he kind of she walked over it, kind of hissed at her, and then she backed away slowly. I was like, oh, is the alien actually a bad creature? Or is it just trying to, like, survive and we awoken it, you know? And he's just chilling, you know? Would he have actually eaten her if she just went asleep in the pod, you know? Or was it um, us poking the bear that led it to being this brutal creature? I don't know. Well, they also, they were not willingly led to that planet. They were mm-hmm. abruptly woken up from stasis. They had a company obligation to respond to this distress call. And then, you know, Ash just bluntly says, like, if we don't respond to this, nobody's going to get paid. And company man, (laughs) Ash, company man or company Android through and through. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. I think it's hard to pin just pin down why exactly the alien's so scary. Mm -hmm. What makes it scary to you? I would have to say its ability to hide. Mm. to strike from the from the unknown mm. and we see it so like so many times in this movie where where it gets dallas in the vents it sneaks up on parker and lambert's it 
takes bread away and then it's able to hide on the craft it's and ash sums it up i think like i admire its purity mm. you know, it's it's it is in a lot of ways it is a perfect killing machine yeah you can't kill it without risking destruction to the craft and the crew because then you risk the acid bleeding through the hull and then sucking everybody out into the cold vacuum of space yeah so yeah. now what do you do with it you have to either blast it out of the airlock or you've got to incinerate it. Mm-hmm. They, they really set it up to being this incredible killing machine. Yeah. I think it's just incredible writing, man. <laughs> These guys, they designed it flawless. I think my answer to you're saying what one thing makes it scary, I, I'm, I mean, in my head, I'm simply saying all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's so true. Like, I think... <laughs> It's a creature that checks off a lot of boxes for people. It is its brutality is unmatched, as Ash is saying. It's almost operates on pure instinct. Has no morals. It's not bound by morals and ethics. Well, and and you see why it takes away, uh, like it takes away Dallas and Brett, because in the deleted scene you find out that it's cocooning mm. um, the crew members so it can grow more aliens, which is nuts to think about that they it, it repurposes its victims into that. Right. It's so scary. It's like they're basically turning them in the brute's house. Yeah. It's it's really just it's that creature, man, all around. It's perfect. <laughs> I think this is a good segue into talking about the chestburster scene, because this is where the alien emerges. And we see like right right off the bat, this thing is so brutal and just has this complete disregard for its victims. And you see Kane in so much pain, and nobody knows what's happening. Because wasn't that scene filmed without them knowing? Because they wanted authentic reactions. They the cast didn't know about the squibs that okay. were on John Hurt's body. So when you see the blood splash on Veronica Cartwright's face, <laughs> that's her actual, true, authentic reaction. That's brilliant. And of course, she passed out after the blood got on her face. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. But I think everybody has a story about seeing this for the first time. Like, I even have members of my family who told me they saw this in theaters and they saw people fainting when the alien emerged from Kane's chest because nobody knew what to expect. Oh, I'm sure back in the day, they'd never seen anything like it. So this is terrifying. And think about how it just. You have no control, and this thing's just going. You don't know what it is or how. Because you, um, John Hurt's character, he had no recollection of the alien, like the facehugger, right? He just thought he passed out. Yeah, it just, it got on, managed (laughs) to attach itself through his helmet visor, which is freaking scary that it was able to just go through the visor of that (laughs) thick plastic or whatever it was. Which I heard that initially they wanted it just to be on um, the helmet, but then I think it was Ridley... Scott that said no it has to burst through it because that's we want the reveal it was all about the the reveal he thought it would mean more if they when they saw his body just laying there with that thing on there which the scene is incredible you see it wrapped around his neck and it's breathing for him it's a brilliant effect (sighs) yes and I think that reveal I think that reveal is brilliant as you were saying because they take they bisect the helmet and they take it away there's no like dramatic musical score there. It's just you see Kane almost just unaware of what is happening to him or what will happen to him. And they're just 
you see Dallas going, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Like, even he didn't know the extent of what was on his face. And I think why, uh, why this movie, to me, makes it so much more interesting, um, because these guys aren't, like, they're not fighters. They're almost like scientists, in a way, because they just want to save their friend. And they're like, get it off, get it off, get it off. And they're trying to brainstorm, you know, and they try to cut it. I think the way that this movie was written and how they played it all out, you're, like, on a ride with it. You know, oh, well, what would I do? How can we try to get this thing off? Oh, crap. You know, with the acid coming out. I think the storytelling in this film is just top notch. I think this does a great job of really kind of laying out the hierarchy of this crew. You know Mm -hmm. what everybody's job is to some extent. I mean, you see Lambert is some type of navigator. Ripley is second in command. and, And you see this dynamic of this crew play out especially when they bring when uh, Dallas and Lambert bring Kane back and Ripley is full on saying like, no, I'm in charge of this ship while you're off. I'm not bringing him back on board. He's got to go in the quarantine and Ash breaks protocol and lets him back in. And you have that dramatic confrontation later where Ripley kind of lays into Ash. Like I'm in charge of this ship when Dallas is not on board. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, this is why I wish the director's cut was more readily available. Sure. Because then you see this dynamic play out even further when Ash and Dallas are examining Kane. As Ripley walks into the med bay observation and Lambert reels up and slaps Ripley in the face. Oh, my God. Because they did because she didn't let them back on board initially. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. And then Dallas lays into her, too. Like, well, I give you an order. I expect you to follow it. And then even she says, like, even at the expense of the health of the crew, mm-hmm. he goes, yes, damn it. Mm-hmm. So you see, like, this is not this is not a group that really likes each other, I mm-hmm. don't think. And I think the magic of editing kind of takes that away a bit. Mm-hmm. That I think this would have been, this is still an amazing movie, but I think it would have been much more amplified if we really, if the tensions among the crew were really kind of dived into a bit more. Mm-hmm. But they do set the precedent, like the storytelling, like, you know, the hierarchy, you know, all the rules. So there are no questions when watching this film. Everything is said. So that I did enjoy that part where it's like, oh, this person's in charge. But I do think with Ash opening the door, it it's curious because it makes you I think that built into his scene. Because you're not sure if he's the villain or not. You're like, all right, is this guy just weird? Does he actually care about these people? Or is he this company man? Which the reveal ends up commenting later on. I think when you watch this movie a a second time, knowing that Ash is an android, Mm -hmm. it makes clearer his entire uh, line of decision making. Even his lines of dialogue make, make much more sense when you go into the fact knowing that Ash is an android. Yeah, very much so, which is a great reveal. It's a great reveal. And then this was something we were talking about leading up to the recording of this. Like, is Ash the villain mm-hmm. or is he just a victim of his programming? Yeah, which I I side with. I think it's a programming thing. I think the corporation is the actual um, the villain in this. It's not even the alien because the alien wouldn't have been on the ship if they would have never responded to the signal. But that goes to the question then, were, did the corporation know of the planet and all that, or was it just all a coincidence? I think it was a coincidence, mm-hmm. responding to the distress signal, then everything after that, like you can pin on the company. Yeah. They saw the money, the dollar signs. 
And we're like, all right. And they were compelled to dr- land on that planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you think the corporation programmed Ash to say, like, hey, here's an opportunity. We there's This is something new. And his programming just says, okay, let's bring it on the ship and maybe we can make some money off of it. Or mm-hmm. now, I think that's something that's kind of more explored in the second film. Mm. But I think here in this instance, Ash was just strictly like company directives. Not so much the bottom line in mind with him, but just like, hey, this is what the company has told me to do. I'm going to follow it to the letter. Mm-hmm. And if I have to shove a porno mag down the throat of one of my crew members <laughs> to make sure that that's done, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Which he, that was the great reveal too. I love the mother, how they communicated to the ship as like mother and they were able to ask the questions. Cause doesn't um, Dallas, when he's going to flesh out the alien in the, um, the exhaust system. Does he ask mother, like, what's his chances of survival? And she's like, cannot compute, cannot compute. Yeah, she cannot yeah. compute. Like, and mother is almost like this weird misnomer for the computer because it doesn't offer any sort of real advice. No. And think about how crazy that would be. You were basically sent on a mission where you could die and you're just trying to figure out your likelihood of survival. And it's like, oh, shoot, I don't, I may die. Well, and when Ripley asks about, you know, what is this directive? And then it says crew expendable. Like, oh, my gosh. And then the at once the computer says crew expendable, the book is out into space at this point. <laughs> like, at this point, it's just like, we don't care what we have to do. We're going to survive, and this thing is going to die. Mm-hmm. And Ash hit it from all of them. <laughs> yeah. Freaking Ash. All right. The, his character is very... It's almost... It's weird with him as an android because you don't know if he likes them or not. I heard in the deleted scene, or I don't even know if they filmed it, where they asked, um, it was between Lambert and, um, what's her uh Rick, Sigourney Weaver's character. Ripley? Ripley. Where they discuss if like they slept with him or not, and then they're like, oh no, I thought he was gay. or something. That was actually going to, that's an omitted thing that Ridley okay. Scott wanted to do, like have the characters imply that they were hooking up with each other Mm -hmm. as a way of staving off loneliness. Mm. And this is something that Ridley Scott, he saved this concept and would use it in later in, uh, in the prequel movies. But this is something he wanted to explore early on and kind of drive home the eroticness or the the erotic overtones that exist in this movie. But I think Fox just mixed that idea. It's like, we can't have everybody hooking up. Yeah, right. This is the wrong kind of movie. <laughs> this is the end of the 70s. <laughs> there was a scene I hear written out that uh, like, uh, that Dallas and Ripley were like talking about you know, going back and going to town on each other. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I mean, I, I like that it's hinted at, but I don't think that's some, it's, it's a dynamic that really needed to have been explored in no. this movie. No, because the tension's all there in their in the search for the alien, mm-hmm. and the at, throwing like, hey, you know, after we're done with this, do you want to have a go at each other? Like, <laughs> that's a very awk- that's awkward <laughs> script writing, is what that is. <laughs> How do you write that scene? Exactly. I think it's just it's such a tight film where you didn't need to have all that extra crap because it would have detracted from the point, which is you know, alien on a ship need to find some way to survive so we can get home. 
and that's it. It's very basic plot. Yeah, if if I was uh, in in their position, uh, I would be focusing on trying to hunt the alien down, and <laughs> not my uh, other needs. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to the uh, chestburster, did you think it was scary? And I think the or? first time I watched it, yes, it is genuinely scary. It is terrifying to watch. Yeah. Because Kane's in so much pain, he's writhing around. You think he's having a seizure or some type of choking, allergic reaction, whatever. And then this phallic type of alien creature bursts from his chest. With chrome teeth. Yeah, and scares <laughs> the piss out of everybody. And even because my girlfriend, she had not watched this until uh, within the last year. Oh, wow. And so she was just basically leaving nail marks in my arm as she's watching this scene. She had never seen this movie. And so I think for people, once you see it for the first time, and then it kind of just loses its effect afterwards. Yeah. It's almost like seeing the opening attack in Jaws for the first time. You see it. Yes, is it still scary? Sort of. Mm -hmm. But it gets lost upon subsequent viewings. But they do set the tension really well in this film. With um, them crawling, through, like, what is happening? Oh, my God, you know? What's coming out of this dude's chest? And you can see the terror. It's such a well-acted... That scene is so iconic. And it's oh really... And it's a part... I mean, it's really the most gruesome death in the film. I mean, you see Brett get bit in the head, and same <laughs> with Parker, but, like, you don't see other deaths in the film other than this. And I think that's where... And I think a lot of, I mean, certainly the films as it got on in the series, you know, we almost like with a like a Halloween movie or Friday the 13th, the deaths got more elaborate. Whereas this, yes, it's gruesome, but it's not over the top. It's a very less is more. Yes. Right. And that's that's why I liked about the alien. They didn't show it like they didn't give it all away. It's kind of very similar to Jaws. You know, you just see the head. Hit Brett, you know, you don't. They didn't spend too much time with it on screen. And I think that was for the benefit, right? Because it was a guy in a costume. Well, yeah, it's fear of the unknown. And the reason why the effect in Jaws works so well is because the shark had mechanical problems. Yeah. <laughs> so then in post production, the music became the shark. Yeah. And the thing with yeah. Alien is the fact, like, yeah, not a lot of the Alien is shown. We only get maybe three or four shots of it actually, like, standing up in full form. The rest of it is either, you know, um, the Dallas hug and the vents or um, you see its head when it's, you know, thinking it's we're, we all think it's going to bite Jonesy through the, the box. I think that's a question we were all asking ourselves, like, please don't eat the cat. <laughs> There's no reason to eat the cat. <laughs> Which I don't know why it didn't. I don't know. It probably couldn't just say uh, another alien. Because you see it kind of looking at it cur curiously, mm -hmm. but he doesn't try to rip the box open or anything. No. Cats, Cats are, are the ultimate uh, pet. pet. <laughs> <laughs> not, not even an alien wants to eat a cat. <laughs> and so how did you think of uh, the women in the film? Because I felt, um, it, well, I felt this film was so well acted. You know, Sigourney Weaver, was she crushed it. But I know with uh, Cartwright, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I was very annoyed. I think she, Veronica Cartwright has caught a lot of flack for mm -hmm. her one job of being scared in these yeah. kinds of movies. <laughs> and I don't think it does her justice to in terms of her ability as an actor. Because we saw her in The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and she was great in that. 
and she's not scared like this the entire time. And I know Ridley Scott has said in the past that, oh, she's representative of the audience's fears. Like, and that's true to a point, but to also be this cowering character that's just in a corner willing to accept her brutal murder at the hands of an alien, like that's not representative of the audience. Like, and then at this point and at that point in the film where she is killed, like our fight instinct should be on. Like, I don't think Lambert deserved the death she got in this movie. I, d I don't think it did her character justice. I would have liked to have seen Lambert try to defend herself at the end to really kind of represent the audience's transition from fear towards fight. Mm, yes. The only thing I can think of, or at least the only reason, is that the character is literally in shock and cannot... Mm -hmm. fight back basically yeah, uh, that's yeah. the only thing i can think of but yes uh, you're right other than that usually our human response is to fight back yeah or flight and yeah I th this is where i think the director's cut should be the definitive version of this movie because there is that scene where lambert slaps ripley mm -hmm. and for not letting them into the ship sooner so i think that saw that really kind of beefs up her character a bit but just to see her kind of go out like that seems a bit of an injustice towards that character, that's all. Considering how everybody else went out in this movie, I mean, Brett, yeah, he went out in pain, but he wasn't cowering in a corner. Dallas was taken in the vents, and Kane went out painfully. I, I just don't think that that was right for Veronica Cartwright. Well, it's really like the only two people that fought back against the alien is, um, I think, Kane and then... Um, I would Sigourney say Weaver. Parker, uh, Yafet Kodo, yeah, and Ripley at the end. Yeah, because they, everyone else had just seemed like they froze up, and I. It's like part of me hates like Cartwright's like performance for that because I'm like ah you know, but at the same token, I can't say how I would respond if I saw like a towering ten foot tall creature that just brutally murdered my friend, you know, and I don't know. It's a that's a real tough one. Maybe maybe I loathe it because like part of me wants to say I would fight the alien, but then maybe her reaction speaks truth, you know, to who how I would react. I don't know. I don't I would just say she, like at that point in the film, the whole crew is galvanized towards finding the alien mm -hmm. and getting off the ship. And for Lambert to like initially be on board with that and then when confronted with the the end goal of the mission, mm -hmm. she just starts cowering and goes into shock. Because doesn't she do that with Dallas when he's in the vent? She's yeah, like, she starts, starts like freaking out. Yeah, she starts freaking out like, oh, my God, it's coming towards you. Get out of there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <gasps> oh, kind of like um, uh, from uh, The Shining. What's her face? Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall. She reminded me of Shelley Duvall in this film so much. <gasps> I, I don't know. Maybe Veronica Cartwright should have been in The Shining. <laughs> right. Although I just watched that recently, and I gotta say, Shelley Duvall had to put up with a lot of crap in that movie. And for people, and if anybody wants to detract from her performance and say you're not watching closely enough, because <laughs> Shelley Duvall is amazing in The Shining, she is. Those people that hate it just aren't compassionate individuals. <laughs> but it is safe to say, though, that Ripley and the cat are the two. They bested the alien. They did, and. <laughs> I think even Ripley kind of goes through a bit of a transformation in this movie because after Dallas is taken, it it's now on her. 
everything is on her. She was able to defer to Dallas for the first and part of the second act. Once Dallas is gone, it's all on her. And she she has that brief breakdown after uh, coming out of the mother room with Ash. But and rightfully so. Like your employer just said, like, you can die because we want this alien. Like, I I'm sure I would react the same way if my employer just said, like, hey, you're expendable. Like, that sucks <laughs> because this isn't mentioned in this movie. But Ripley, I mean, she wants to get back home. She's got a family. They all want to get paid. I mean, I mean, Brett and Parker want to get paid because it's all <laughs> they talk about. <laughs> but she really does want to get back home and to see this pain and anguish on her face of of confronting the possibility that that might not happen because her employer deems it deems her not essential is heartbreaking. And then even more so that a company Android tries to, you know, rape her with a magazine, yeah. <laughs> which just pushes home, you know, the, the nature of the film. One of the themes they were trying to push down the irony of a porn mag coming through her throat, <laughs> which I, I read online about that, like, cause I saw some people were like, Oh, why would he just, you know, he's so strong. Why would he just put a magazine down her, you know, instead of strangling. And I read that because Cause he's an android, you know. He he didn't know how to murder, so and he cared about the alien so much that he was just trying to manufacture what the alien did. Maybe that's all. It could have been knew. his programming as well as like he couldn't physically like kill her, but maybe he was thinking like, well, I'm not killing her. The magazine's killing her. <laughs> right. Which uh, kudos to Ian Holm. I thought he was really good in this film. I will I will say yeah, he was great. Ian Holm, fantastic actor. Rest in peace. But. I like that effect where Parker nails him with a fire extinguisher and his head comes off. I mean, for the most part, the effects in this film are really great, but you can clearly tell that like Yafet Koto is hanging onto his arms to make it look like he's trying to come after him. <laughs> yeah. That was the one part in the movie where I'm like, I'm totally taken out by this. <laughs> or like after uh, they hit the head. After, you know, they're done talking with him. They're like, screw you, Ash. We're leaving, you know. And it goes back to the uh, mannequin face. Yeah. That was kind of eh, 70s, you know. It's 70s, yeah. I mean, it's still, it's great effects for the most part. I don't have any issue with it other than, you know, seeing, you know, you know the android like doing mm-hmm. karate chops and <laughs> poor Yafet Kodo having to act to this thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love the organs inside it, you know. With like the milky blood, and yeah. then they have like the marbles on the string. Whoever made that design, top notch. Because how would you design an android, right? Well, it's also unclear as to like exactly when this movie takes place. I think it's implied it's like the early twenty second century or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. Like, how do you design an android when nothing comparable exists in your time? I mean, the closest reference point you would have is like an electric blender. You got to make it look like something out of Star Wars, but then you're going to be accused of making a Star Wars copycat. Mm-hmm. So you can't do anything that's like C-3PO, and yeah. you can't do anything that looks like you know you could pick up at Sears for your household. <laughs> so you got to walk this fine line of, like, yes, it is an android, but we also can't try to copy what Star Wars did. And they they made their own. Now that white blood stuff is in every freaking film. I don't know. They've never kind of answered exactly what these androids are made out of. And I don't think they have to. No. It's not important. I mean, and this movie's created a bunch of other mysteries because, like, now we have the benefit of having 
what, five, six other movies that have come out after this to answer some of these questions. But before this, like, we didn't know the company is unnamed. Yeah. We don't know it's the Wayland yutani Corporation until Aliens. They don't know where Ash came from. And even they asked, like, have you served with Ash before? Have you been on a flight with him? Nobody knows where he came from. Because he was a last-minute addition, I believe, right? It was like two days before they took off. Yeah. He jumped on. Yeah. And that just might be like a company um, thing where they surreptitiously place an alien, uh, excuse me, an android among the crew, maybe for like monitoring purposes. I read that, yeah, to make sure everything goes according to, you know, plan. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we don't know the planet they landed on. That's not really mentioned. We don't know what laid all the eggs either. Because mm-hmm. when Kane goes down into the in the spacecraft, there's there's hundreds of eggs there. Yeah. And even we find out in the subsequent movies, like how the the eggs get laid. But like, where did they all come from? Which I do have to say, the scene where they find the exoskeleton, really well done. Because I I saw that you know in Prometheus. But I didn't know it was in this movie. Like, that was stemmed all, like, that whole scene. Um, and it was really well done. I was like, this looks great for 79. You know, with the exoskeleton and everything. Kudos to them. Well, they the built show. a, I actually read that they built a scaled down version of that set. And in order to actually give a sense of grandiose to it, Ridley Scott had his two sons dress up in the spacesuits, and he's got his cinematographer's little boy. They dressed him up in spacesuits <laughs> and just filmed them walking oh. around on sets because they were like, you know, they were little kids at the time. Oh. It's like, all right, children, just walk around. We'll film you. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. Oh, yeah, bringing a kid to work day. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be traumatizing to them a little bit? I don't, they're not seeing, uh, you know, Kane with an open, you know, hole in his chest. They're just seeing like a derelict spacecraft i don't know (laughs) (laughs) jeremy's just looking like i'm not putting my kid on that set (laughs) no yeah yeah, i'd probably pass (laughs) cameron can wait till he's older (laughs) Uh, and 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 i think this is something we've asked before in other movies where they've raised questions like this like do you think it's important for these mysteries to get solved at the end of the film or does it matter like does the does the fight for survival outweigh the need to know where the the, the answer to these mysteries? <sighs> That's a good question. I think it just depends on the film. Like with this film, they answered most of the details. So to me, it didn't really matter. I just wanted them to, you know, I wanted Ripley to survive and get out and best the alien. But if they were more vague, you know, like they didn't even come on the planet. Like you didn't see him, you know, you just saw him leaving. Then, yeah, I think there is... Those questions can be, but they are answered later on in sequels. And they don't even, there's that scene where Ripley brings it up with Ash about, I don't think this is a distress signal. I think it's a warning signal. Mm-hmm. They don't even, they don't, that question doesn't get answered. No, no. Which I wasn't sure if Ash knew it was a warning signal, but didn't want to tell them. It could be, given how he hid a lot of things from the crew until the very end. Mm-hmm. So I think it's entirely possible that he knew the nature of this signal, but his programming just you know, overrode all of that. Yeah, following the company's protocols. But it's also one of those things where you, if you watch the movie, keeping in mind that Ash is an android, his motivations become <laughs> very clear. Oh, yeah. Like, you see it, because I saw it twice, and the second time you see when uh, he's in his little lab, and Ripley comes and talks to him. There's a picture of the um, 
the alien, the xenomorph, like the little baby inside, you know, the dude's throat. And it's on the screen. And then he quickly turns off the computer. <laughs> when Ripley, so like he knew the whole time that, you know, something was about to burst out. So I, I definitely would recommend this film as a, you got to watch it twice. Yeah. No way. It's like Christopher Nolan. It's like pre-Christopher Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely. I think because seeing it twice almost does answer some of the questions in a way. Yeah, but I don't know if it's entirely necessary for these questions to get answered by the time the film's over. The, the fundamental quest to survive has been completed. Mm-hmm. There's, we don't need to know where the distress signal came from. Ridley's, the Nostromo is destroyed. They're not on the planet anymore. The alien's gone. The crew's dead. Yeah. There's nothing left to answer here. <laughs> I would I would agree with that. I think uh, the story in itself is uh, makes a, a great movie. Um, I think we just get the added benefit of finding out more with later movies that were made um, to just kind of solve our curiosity. I I don't think it would have been necessary in the end, but it does kind of satisfy at least some of that feeling that maybe some people had. Yeah. Like, I don't know if that itch needs to be scratched about finding out if this is a distress signal mm-hmm. or a warning signal or what the name of the planet is. That doesn't, yeah. that that's not necessary. It adds to the mystique of the film, the ambiguity of it all. And like, almost like, like Jeremy was saying, you almost don't even need like the sequels It by itself. This film is enough. You know, we just got the sequels because we're cash cow. But <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want to spend some time actually talking about the music of this movie. Hmm. I think Jerry Goldsmith just created this atmosphere almost right from the get go with that title sequence hmm. that this movie is not going to be your typical space adventure. It's creepy. It's weird. You're not going to hear Zazel Sprock Zarathustra like you heard in 2001 A Space Odyssey. As you see that title sequence, if you take away the music, you think that that's the type of movie you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And right off the bat, we hear that creepy music that just fits. We know right from the jump that this is not like you, you shouldn't expect a space epic here. You should expect something that's going to scare the pants off. you. Yeah, very eerie. Very, very eerie. And I, it's crazy to me that Ridley Scott didn't want Jerry Goldsmith at first to do this movie. Because Jerry Goldsmith was actually the original choice to do um, Superman, the Superman film, before they got John Williams. Oh, wow. And there's this weird period in the 70s where Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams are competing to do the scores <laughs> for the same movies. And the Hollywood scores would have been fundamentally different, I think, if Jerry Goldsmith did them. And Jerry Goldsmith's still an amazing composer. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong at all. But he actually wrote something very different from the title sequence. And Ridley Scott hated it. <laughs> and Goldsmith just said, like, so I did what they wanted. I did something creepy and weird. Mm-hmm. But I think just going for that aesthetic, being creepy and weird, and also a lot of wonder, I think, in, in the appropriate parts. Because you see the crew awaken, and it's very light. There's not a lot of music. So it really it does play into this sense of wonder. Because at the end of the day, like this is still space travel. There's a, there is something fundamentally wonderful and mysterious in a good way about space travel. So it does play into that. But then as the film gets on and the alien is loose in the ship, it is it's freaking terrifying to listen to the score. 
It sets the stage, sets the themes. It's yeah. wonderful. It's great. It does everything the soundtrack is supposed to. <laughs> Unlike crappy ones that we've reviewed before. <laughs> it's not over like bearing either, you know. It's not like you're seeing, you know, ball or something like while he's going through the tunnel <laughs> like when the uh dallas turns and sees the alien like ha ha you know like that would just be terrible if it was like ball like, yeah no. it's not jump scary no there's like this this doesn't use jump scares and i think if this were in yes. a different director's hands <laughs> like there would have been an over-reliance on jump scares yeah it's like the sequels <laughs> it's all jump scares that's what i love about this film it's just very in the moment you know it's, it's that tension that builds you know you're more invested in the fear of these guys yeah if there are aspiring horror directors out there let me give you a piece of advice <laughs> you don't need to have jump scares for your film to be scary <laughs> especially like 12 of them it's like oh my god watch what mike flanagan's doing he, he proves that you don't need jump scares to be scary <laughs> amen to that uh anything else we want to bring up before we get into the uh the fun parts of the episodes oh um what'd you think because i know ripley escaping in her undies is like iconic too i saw you wrote about that <laughs> I was my first time watching this. I did not expect her to get down to her skivvies in the lifeboat. Bit awkward watching it with my girlfriend because she was not expecting it either. Yeah, especially the the angle of the camera. Oh yeah, yeah, it's down there, like basically by her butt, and looking up, it's like if something shifts wrong, like you see the whole show here, and it's weird. Like the film, like is not sexy in this way. Until the last five minutes of it. <laughs> and even then, like, I wouldn't call that, like, overtly sexy. I think it's more just showing Ripley at her most vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's what I took it as. She's just getting comfy, you know, before the space journey yeah, she's home. Going down for a long stasis nap. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the hand swipes out like, get away from me. I'm taking a nap. And then the alien emerges, I think, more frustrated that its nap was interrupted than trying yes. to kill her. That's what I felt, too. It was like, oh, you. Like, you interrupted my nap. Now you're going to die. <laughs> Which, if we've woken up anybody who really needs a nap, they look at us like that. <laughs> That's funny. Although, did you guys see that that the ending, there was a different ending in mind for this movie? No. So the ending that Ridley Scott had originally envisioned wasn't the ending that we saw. So instead of Ripley blasting the alien out of the airlock, the original ending was supposed to be the alien ripping her head off and recording her final transmission in her voice and returning to Earth, supposedly. Oh, wow. It would have been a completely different movie. That's... Do, do we think there's a universe where we could want, where we would want to see that movie? Because I see a lot of skeptical looks right now. I just don't think that works well with the, with the rest of the film, in my opinion. Yeah. I'm going to second Jeremy on that one. It just doesn't make sense. I think it, it, I wouldn't mind maybe seeing an alternate ending if they did shot it. But I don't know, like, yeah. I don't need to see that as like it's part of the director's cut. If there's, you know, if Ridley Scott wants to re-edit this movie again, at least not in that manner. If if you want to go the route of uh, killing Ripley and the alien returning to Earth, then 
Yeah, I could probably, I could see that, but ripping the head off and and recording it in her voice, I, I don't know that that part just seems confusing to me. Because I, I get it, like with the evolution thing, because it's always evolving. But yeah, it doesn't make sense. That's too much. <laughs> yeah, we didn't need that. I mean, the ending we got was perfect. I think to sum up the film. I mean, yeah, very deadpan delivers her last transition. You know. The last survivor of the Nostromo signing off. And then goes to sleep with a cat on her chest. <laughs> the best way to go out. <laughs> you see the alien blown away from the like by the uh, thrusters, you know. So it was cool. Although was when cool. that when it lashed itself onto the ship again, I thought for sure, like, oh God, no. <laughs> turn on the turn on the thrusters quick, kill it. <laughs> Incinerate it. Which I kinda laughed at that scene. Whoa! Well, when she's getting into the spacesuit and starts singing, you are my lucky star, like, you don't know what she's thinking, what she's going to do. And then she screams and harpoons it right in the chest. I thought that was fantastic. (laughs) Great way to go out. Great ending. Yeah. Ah. Don't change a thing about the ending. Please don't. (laughs) (laughs) Don't pull a George Lucas. No, this movie doesn't need to be re-updated or re-edited. Just don't. Leave it alone. It's funny. I actually saw a YouTube video about uh, Reservoir Dogs. It's like Reservoir Dogs, edited by George Lucas. And it shows the ending scene where they're about to shoot each other. And right before they shoot each other, there's a big alien that walks across the screen (laughs) blocking the shot. I believe it. (laughs) Yes. Oh, George. Oh, my God. But back to this. Uh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. Speaking of something like George, that would be a lens flare. Do you have any lens flares? (laughs) Let's get into our lens flares. We'll get into the fun part of the episodes. Uh all right, who wants to lead off with lens flare? Sean, did you have a lens flare for Alien? Oh God, I actually, I actually don't. To me, this is damn near a perfect film, so I'm good. Okay, yeah, I can co-sign on that. What about you, Jeremy? The one I thought of is, um, why the heck are there uh, steam or or gases spraying everywhere throughout the whole time of the movie? I, I mean, I get maybe you need to hide the alien, but I just felt like it was a little too much. I, I just, it, the thought had popped into my mind at some random point during the movie, and um, that, that that's really only my lens flare. But, uh, yeah, I just I just thought it was a little too much, because, I mean, wouldn't you think you're, you're, you're the, the human race is advanced enough to be building a spaceship, and you have these pipes leaking gas and steam, and... It just doesn't seem very efficient to me. Like that's not a, that's not a advanced human race that I would think of. But anyways, <laughs> maybe it's maybe this is an alternate future where Elon Musk does successfully create spacecraft, but this is like the first generation of that they're still trying to keep together. Musk. Well, you're not. Hey, I'm gonna dig. I'm gonna throw some shade at Elon Musk wherever I can. <laughs> Things just because he designs good cars, he can design good spaceships. It's not how that works. You didn't see Henry Ford trying to build a Saturn V rocket, did you? <laughs> if only he knew. <laughs> uh, uh, if I yeah, if I had a lens flare, I would have to say that um, that blue light that Kane experiments with over the eggs. Like I don't that it's a cool effect. Mm-hmm. I don't think it does anything in that moment. Hmm. Um, I never got the sense that like oh, I break this blue light, therefore it activates the eggs. Mm-hmm. Like I I didn't. I didn't feel like that that night was necessary. Oh, yeah. 
I just didn't. Yeah, it's certainly a cool effect. I love the production design of seeing all those eggs in the in that corner of the spaceship. But like, that doesn't need to be there. No. Fair and plus, enough. it implies that there's still power running through that ship, even though it's like, no, this this ship is destroyed and it's damaged. Like, <laughs> there's no power running through here. Fair enough. Did you have any uh, toxic fan or any red shirts before we get in the fandom? Uh, you know, my red shirt, and this was somebody I was a bit disappointed that he was killed. Um, Parker. Huh. I like Parker. I liked his character. I liked the dynamic that he and Brett shared. He was sarcastic, but he always stepped up and he saved Ripley from being killed by Ash. He was you know, trying to find Brett after he was taken. And in the end, he tried to save Lambert, but Lambert froze up and all Parker got for his trouble was, you know, being bitten in the head. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to actually uh, agree with you. He was the only one that died where I'm like, oh, come on. But. I get why he died because it's about Ripley and her, uh, you know, her journey throughout the whole story overcoming. So yeah. I, I'm going to co-sign that with you. Without knowing, um, you know, Parker being kind of a, a, a better person and stepping up, like you say, at the beginning, Brett and Parker, I feel like they're just like all about the money. Right. And, and at the beginning, I was like, oh, man, these, these two guys are going to be the red shirts. Like, because they're the ones complaining. And, and I, I've just, I just felt like, like even I sort of want them to be the red shirts because all they're thinking about is money right now, you know. Um, so that, that's, 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 those are the thoughts that I had on those two characters. <laughs> like I said, they got a great dynamic. But, yeah, like you said, the first, thing, the first introduction we get to their characters is they want to talk about their bonuses. And they, I think they brought it up a couple of times, though, too, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. There's at least two or three subsequent other conversations or lines of dialogue they have. Like, so what's this going to do for our bonus? Like, how about you worry about that later, man? We got a murderous alien on board. <laughs> <laughs> they want to get paid extra. Because <laughs> where are these guys? Like a mining company or yeah, something? Yeah, I think they're like running Deep Space Salvage or something. Right. I don't know what this company does. It's like one of those weird, you know, conglomerates from the 1980s. It's like, what does this company do? It's like, we don't really know. Well, again, another question. We specialize in telecommunications. Like, what does that mean? Do you sell telephones? Like, what's going on here? Do you sell internet before we know to call it the internet? Uh, speaking of extra stuff, are you guys ready for the latest entry in This Week in Toxic Fandom? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Okay, so during the landing sequence, Kane issues the instruction, roll 92 degrees port yaw. Roll and yaw are two separate axes. The correct instruction, and what the ship actually does, that's in parentheses, by the way, is roll 90 degrees port. No one got direction nerds taken to IMDb. It's like, this is wrong. That's so stupid. Like you, this took you out of the movie so bad you had to let IMDb know that it bothered you. Someone got triggered. unless you're a direction nerd, you don't care which way the ship is going in this movie, right? And to go on IMDb. And by the way, space is infinite in all directions. It doesn't matter which way you freaking go. You can go backwards. You won't know you're going backwards, but you're going backwards. That's great. <laughs> oh, I love it. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> that just blows my mind. Uh, so, with all that in mind, let's get into 
the overwhelming legacy that is Alien. <laughs> and we're going to refrain from talking about this in the context of the overall franchise because the legacy of this movie alone is staggering. And massive box office success when it came out. It, it grossed uh, $106.3 million in 1979. So adjusted for inflation, that uh, equals about $325 million in today's wow. money. So very big success for the budget that it received at the time. And I w- it's weird to think that this movie didn't get a formal premiere of sorts. Hmm. It a lot of props and models and sets were set up at actually Grauman's Theater in, in Hollywood. And it actually, so it got a full release in the United States in 1979. And it even didn't get a full release in Britain until January of the next year. Oh, wow. So really delayed release for as great and big a movie as this is. A little surprised at that. I wonder if people were skeptical and that's why it was kind of like a slow growth. Uh, slow go at um, releasing it and uh, but then people found out hey this is actually a really good movie I think um, I think space movie fatigue set in pretty hard mm-hmm. at this point because as soon as Star Wars came out <laughs> studios were cranking out space movies left and right and we've even talked about that phenomenon in our previous episode on Moonraker mm-hmm. you know, they saw Star Wars and Moonraker got moved up a full four years in production. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, people want to see space movies now. <laughs> they want to see, see see James Bond in space. Uh. And what actually pissed me off in re- researching like what happened post-release, Fox actually tried claiming that this movie didn't make money. They used what's known as Hollywood accounting where they tried to say like, we spent so much money on uh, promotion and marketing this movie that it didn't make money. But this was... Really, this was an effort to try to avoid paying uh, Brandywine Productions for their role in creating the film. And this discrepancy eventually led to a lawsuit that was settled out of court. Fox agreed to then finance um, Alien 2, which would become Aliens, but they were absolved of any sort of like role in distributing the film. So basically, it was their way of saying, like, we admit no fault, but here's a bunch of money. (laughs) Oh, Fox. Oh, Fox. <laughs> you bunch of bastards. <laughs> so even at the time, we now know this movie to be great and legendary in its own right. Mm-hmm. But how surprised would you guys be to hear that reviews at the time were mixed when this came out? I can I can see it. It always is like that with something new and fresh. I mean, Siskel and Ebert, I mean, did praise it when that team was still alive. But I think it wasn't until the following year, like, that people really kind of caught on to this. Because it was, you know, it won an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. It was nominated for Production Design. Won a bunch of Saturn Awards, Best Sci-Fi Film, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress. um, Nominated for Best Actress for Sigourney Weaver. Along with Best Special Effects, Best Makeup, and Best Writing. But... Sean likes to point out they give out Saturn nominations like candy, it seems like, sometimes. <laughs> they do. Uh, we talked about the director's cut a little bit. It got that director's cut in 2003. But really, like, those... That doesn't mean much to me because Ridley Scott also has, like, eight edits of Blade Runner out there. <laughs> and I'm sure there's a director's cut of Gladiator just sitting out there that hasn't gotten a release yet. But it doesn't do anything. I mean, other than making Lambert, you know, a better character... It adds four minutes of film, yeah. but it also takes away five minutes of film. So really, 
the director's cut is somehow shorter than the actual theatrical release, which to me, director's cuts are always like an hour longer the, if they could be. I mean, Peter Jackson's got like the crown of director's <laughs> cuts. Every film of his has a director's cut. <laughs> um, this was selected by Preservation by the Library of Congress in 2002, which hmm. I think I've said before, I think that is the highest honor a film could ever get. Mm-hmm. Um Contemporary reviews have also been very positive. 98% on Rod Tomatoes, got an 89 on Metacritic. And obviously it spawned a whole franchise. There's so many sequels, there's video games, there's merchandise. So like you cannot like you name it, there's a bit of merchandise that has alien marketed on it. And a lot of it I think is tied into that poster, that iconic poster yeah. of the egg that's bleeding with that tagline in space no one can hear you scream you speak that tagline everybody knows instantly what movie you're talking about it's like humming the first two notes to jaws i actually didn't know that tag you didn't know that tagline (laughs) what no i didn't so i'll be the one but i also (laughs) didn't know what deadwood was so well we don't need to rehab don't say it (laughs) do not say it because you've now gotten my girlfriend asking me that, and it pisses me off. Is it? It wasn't this. Don't. <laughs> wasn't this referenced in Deadwood? Alien? Yeah. No. No. But the wood's dead, right? Shut. <laughs> oh, I hate you. <laughs> and I think I think the most interesting note in terms of this movie's legacy, because in 2019 there was a high school, North Bergen High School in New Jersey adapted this movie into a stage play with its students and i've watched this stage play and <laughs> for a bunch of kids putting this on yeah. they did an amazing job How? and it even got the attention of ridley scott he wrote them a letter congratulating them it even encouraged them to do an adaptation of gladiator i don't know how you do that but he wanted them to do it <laughs> and sigourney weaver even ponied up about five thousand dollars of her own money to put for the school to put on an encore show and she showed up. She gave an intro. She thanked the staff and the students. And it's a it's actually worth watching, in my opinion. I think it's great. And I'm a theater nerd, so I, I love seeing <laughs> kids get creative and doing things like this because you don't see this too often. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of things that get lost in translation from stage to screen and, and the other way around. But I think it was great. Those kids did an amazing job. I just know that they did that in Bob's Burgers. <laughs> they like referenced it and i was like oh there's no oh my gosh yeah you're but you're right i'm googling it now and it looks really good yeah they actually did they do pretty the, darn they, good sets yeah wow. the, those kids i mean they should be immensely proud of their work on that show so wow yeah kudos well that's cool yeah, cool thank you chris enriching <laughs> my life with this moment all right <laughs> so let's get into what we think of alien let's talk about our rating now on the force fed sci-fi podcast we have our unique scale of wouldn't watch would watch would own and we'll host a viewing party let's lead off with our friend producer jeremy what do you give to 1979's alien i would give it a host a viewing party all right and that's uh that's because there's there's so much uh to talk about with this film after watching it and so many things that you can, um, uh, you know, amongst our us nerds, we could analyze and talk about and geek over about. So, uh, that, that's what, uh, that's my rating for this film. 
<laughs> nice. What about you, Sean? I'm going to echo Jeremy. Yeah, I, I would host a viewing party for this as well. It's, a, in my mind, pretty darn close to perfect if a film could be. So just everything about it, cinematography, writing, storytelling. Yeah, I love it. So one of my top faves, put on your alien costume and make some eggs. Let's go. <laughs> Chris? I think it's no secret on our show that we love a good genre bender type of film. And I think this checks that box in spades. It's horror. It's science fiction. It's good character drama. I love the production design. I love the effects. Even though the ash effect is still is schlocky by today's standards, it's still great. Um, and, it, and it's that great question about science opening that Pandora's box. Are you going to be ready for what comes out of it? And it's tense. It's scary. This world feels lived in. It's not clean. Mm-hmm. It's dirty. There's, And the cast is great. And it's eternally creepy, as I like to say. And we're going to be in a trifecta of agreement because I'm calling this a wood-hosted viewing party. Absolutely. Ooh. So top marks for Alien all the way around. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> Take that as you will. <laughs> and normally here at this point in the show... We would kind of we would consult Major Samantha about what to watch next. But man, I just feel the need to watch aliens after this now. <laughs> I want to do aliens. Well, let's do it. All right. Jeremy, you in agreement? Of course. All right. <laughs> All right. We are going to talk aliens next time. I'm so excited. I love that movie. Definitely. I'm pumped. Let's do it. <laughs> all right well that's gonna wrap it up on this edition of the force fed sci-fi podcast uh great to be back in person recording with the trio once again all right and if you enjoyed today's episode please head on over to apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review it really helps to drive us up those charts and helps people like you find the show we are across the spectrum of social media with facebook twitter and instagram all at force fed sci-fi you can check out and download episodes from apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, for show notes and all of our social media. And for all of us at the Forcefed Sci-Fi team, we'll see you next time.